0: The International Science Radio Show. We have a bouncer from the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism of the dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Hello and welcome to this week's Diffusion Show. Broadcast hot and fresh straight from the ovens here in Old Sydney Town. I'm Emily Fern and this week we've got a show filled with intrigue, featuring two fairly interrelated stories. John August reviews a highly controversial program, The Global Warming Swindle and Current Climate Change, whilst Patrick Ruby cools our heels with a story about winter sports. So if you're listening to us on 2SER in Sydney or somewhere else in Australia on the Community Radio Network, or you're sneakily listening to the show on your MP3 player at work, Settle back and listen to the soothing tones of Ian Wolfe, who has compiled all the latest and greatest pieces of science news for your listening pleasure.
0: The Australian Audiovisual Archive is now online at australianscreen.com.au. You can look at clips from over 500 Australian feature films, documentaries, TV shows, newsreels, Australian TV ads and even home movies from the last hundred years. The site lets you watch clips from the National Film and Sound Archive the National Archives of Australia, the ABC, SBS and the Australian Institute of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Studies. All the material is made available with the permission of the copyright holders which may be why there are only clips instead of the whole show. There are archive curator notes about each title. The Australian Screen website's educational potential was so exciting that they were overwhelmed on their first day. Schools around Australia started using the content simultaneously. The website had been restored to service, but the problem is that the site is set up for streaming flash videos like YouTube, presumably to protect the copyright holders. Every time you view a streaming video clip, the file is stored temporarily on your hard drive, and then erased. This means that teachers have to download the files again every time they want to show the video to a new class. This is plainly a waste of bandwidth, an issue the government doesn't understand. The schools have to pay over and over again for every megabyte they download, and all the repeated viewings of the same files are slowing everyone's access to the material. It would make more sense for the teachers to be allowed to easily download the video clips to a fast local archive at the school, and pay an internet provider to download the video clips once, or even allow schools to share the clips using peer-to-peer networking like BitTorrent. This aspect of the site seems to be designed more with the copyright holder's needs in mind than the needs of the teachers and students. So far the TV shows only go back to 1985, but the documentaries go back to 1926. The feature movies include Australian classics like Alvin Purple. They have three short clips of the 1906 movie, The Story of the Kelly Gang, which was made only 26 years after the notorious bushranger Ned Kelly was hanged. For some strange reason there are no radio archives on the site at all. Hopefully. They'll be added as the site grows. Caffeine can make you more open to persuasive messages. It's long been known that caffeinated beverages increase your arousal, stimulate your thinking, and make you more talkative. All of which can be used to change your mind. In 2005, the University of Queensland published a paper in the Journal of Applied Psychology, Caffeine, Cognition, and Persuasion, Evidence for Caffeine Increasing the Systematic Processing of Persuasive Messages they found that people drinking orange juice laced with caffeine showed more agreement with an article about voluntary euthanasia and the indirectly related subject of abortion than people who drank the orange juice laced with placebo. They waited 40 minutes for the buzz to kick in before they read the articles. A second experiment showed strong arguments to some people and weak arguments to others to see how much systemic processing, or what I like to call thinking, had occurred. Thinking occurred for both caffeinated and placebo drinkers, but was greater in those with a buzz. However, the thinking was all in the direction of the arguments they were presented. They did further experiments where a majority endorsed the ideas in the articles, or a minority endorsed them. Normally, a majority endorsement will increase the number of people persuaded, but the caffeine drinkers were even more open to the tyranny of the majority. Caffeine can make you conform more to majority opinions. Like all mind-altering drugs, the context in which they're taken can make a difference. So caffeine might make you think more, but can also let other people direct what you end up thinking. If you want to persuade kids not to take drugs, you should give them a can of cola before the presentation. It's a whole new spin on, let's go out for coffee. The remote control is finally obsolete. Instead of a remote that you can lose, the TV is equipped with a box with a camera that watches for hand signals from the viewer. At present, the device can recognise seven different hand gestures and control eight different appliances. The Magical Gesture Machine comes from Australian engineers Dr Prashan Pramaratne and Kwang Nagayan. Their software recognises simple, deliberate hand gestures, then sends the appropriate signal to Universal Remote Control, designed to work with the most remotely controlled devices. It works in all kinds of lighting, and is scheduled to be on sale by 2010. One gesture tells the remote which device you want to control, The making a clenched fist means start, an outstretched hand with closed fingers means power on, A thumbs up means up, and a sideways victory sign means channel. Perhaps political campaigns could collect the hand gestures of people during their speeches to work out how well they went. Of course, how much you trust having a TV watching you watching is another matter. The next project is to integrate the hand gesture recognition into gaming consoles where the big money is. Microscopic beasts of burden are being harnessed to move microscopic bits of plastic. Min-Jun Kim and colleagues at Drexel University in Philadelphia have used the bacteria Serratia markensis to move tiny triangles of plastic epoxy. The triangles of epoxy are 50 micrometres across, about the diameter of a human hair, and 10 micrometres thick, about the thickness of a single cell. The bacteria are introduced to the liquid nutrient in a dish, and the triangle floats on top. The bacteria move the triangle at 9 micrometres per second as they swarm across the liquid in waves. They stop when an ultraviolet traffic light is shone, and start up again when the light switches off. The process is called phototaxis. The bacteria propel themselves with flagella, little whip-like tails that rotate. In some corners of the dishes, the bacteria are swirling in a vortex instead of in a straight line wave, and the triangle in those areas go around and around. again. The bacteria stopped when the ultraviolet traffic light was switched on and went back around when the light was switched off again. The idea is that these bacteria might be able to power tiny machines that could work in our bodies to deliver drugs or pump hormones. It's microtechnology rather than nanotechnology, but it shows a lot of promise. And finally, human babies and adult chimps are willing to selflessly help strangers. Kindness to strangers is part of our evolution. Researchers studied 36 chimps at Nagamba Island Chimpanzee Sanctuary in Uganda that were born in the wild. In experiments, each chimp watched a person they'd never seen before unsuccessfully reach for a wooden stick that was within reach of the ape. person had struggled over the stick beforehand, suggesting it was important. The chimps often handed the stick over, even when the apes had to climb three metres out of their way to get the stick, even if they were not rewarded. They found exactly the same thing when they tried the experiment with 36 18-month-old humans. Researchers were concerned that maybe the chimps were related and were helping out kin rather than strangers, so they tried another experiment. They set up closed rooms that each held a piece of banana or watermelon. The only way for a chimp to get in was if an unrelated spectator chimp released a chain to open the room. Sure enough, the chimps often helped the stranger, even when there was no reward. Primatologist Franz de Waal at Emory University in Atlanta noted that he's recorded hundreds of cases of altruism among chimpanzees, but he was always greeted with scepticism. Scientists now suspect the lack of altruism they'd seen previously was more a result of the way the experiments were set up, not because the chimps were lacking in kindness to strangers.
1: Thank you, Ian. I know I'll rethink my next coffee with the boss, look sideways at my television, and make sure to flip my TV the bird at election time. And now for today's first feature. Taking a closer look at the current hot topic of climate change, John August is here to discuss the global warming swindle. Take it away, John.
2: The ABC recently broadcast a documentary called The Great Global Warming Swindle. It's caused a lot of controversy, and here's me adding to it. Now one of the things that it does is misrepresent the mainstream global warming position and tries to say that it's trying to stop development in third world countries. In fact what gets discussed a lot is using uh, carbon credits so that you give the carbon credits to the third world nations which they then trade with the first world nations and you're actually making use of the market to uh, result in good outcomes and a reduction in global CO2 output. Now, one of the things is that carbon dioxide is not the only uh, source of climate change and warming, but basically it is a greenhouse gas, and we would expect that if there was increased uh, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, that other things being equal, there would be an increased temperature. Now, one of the things is that that temperature is not going to be evenly distributed across the globe. Uh, You're going to have more heating at the equator, and that's going to be spread around the globe to varying degrees. Now, one of the things that the documentary talks about is the... I think it's the medieval warming period, and okay, certainly there was a warming period, but that wasn't repeated globally, so they were being rather misleading to talk about that. And then if you look at global historical temperature change, it's true that uh, global temperature change uh, leads the CO2 change, but basically there are approaches which look at the ice sheet coverage around the world and rock weathering absorbing uh, carbon dioxide. And certainly there might be other events that start things along, but it's still reasonable to expect that the CO2 would actually result in global warming. And there are then there's the issue of uh, how the world's temperature was actually diminishing through the Industrial Revolution. And again, there's other factors that could be at work that might actually quench out the effect of the carbon dioxide. One thing that has been identified recently has been global dimming, where basically the particulates in the atmosphere reflect the sun away. Now, one of the things that the film does actually uh, look at uh, some researchers who seem to have been hard done by, and that is certainly a source of concern. There's a a researcher in France who's been looking at uh, malaria, and he basically says that his position has been misrepresented by the IPCC. And, you know, I'll certainly take the the researcher at his word, and that's uh, certainly something that's of concern, but I don't think it's actually undermining a lot of the picture that is behind global warming. Then you also have some researchers who uh, have have been marginalised and harassed and so on based on the positions that they're putting forward, which is challenging global warming. Now, I'm certainly sympathetic to those researchers. I don't agree with what they're saying, but I certainly don't believe that they should be ostracised and that basically, uh, if I assume that they're wrong, that basically that sort of thing should actually come out through the scientific process. So, you know, there are some points that the film is making that is valid, but they're actually rather small in number compared to the distortions that are actually present. But it is something that I think is good to be broadcast, even though it's wrong. I don't think the mere fact that something is wrong should stop it from being broadcast, and you know, hopefully people will think about it and discuss it and actually discover why it is wrong. Um, I think I hope I'm adding a little bit to that, but there's obviously a lot more to this documentary than I'm able to uh, cover in the few minutes that I have. So I encourage you to have a look at the the internet. There's particularly an an interesting reference uh, on uh, Wikipedia and there's many other places to look.
1: Certainly a topic of great concern for all of us. Thank you, John, for those interesting points. On a lighter note, up next we've got Patrick Ruby with the Science of Snow Sports. So go ahead and kick your heels up with Patrick.
3: It's been a pretty cold winter in Sydney the last few weeks with temperatures reaching a 21-year low. That can be bad news for us city slickers, not used to those 13 degrees Celsius mornings, strong winds and iced-up windscreens. It's tempting a lot of us to stay an extra hour in bed in the morning instead of facing the daily grind. However, it's not all bad news for some of us. Australia is having one of its best snowfalls in years, particularly in the skiing hotspots of Mount Hotham, Perisher Blue, Threadbow and Falls Creek. There's been more snow this July than in the whole of the last season. And with that extra snow comes the snowbodies, the hardcore skiers, the hardcore snowboarders, the up ski junkies and everyone in between. To help me with unravelling the secrets of snow sports, I spoke to Nick Fisher, an avid skier of the last 20 years and former Australian competitor at the Winter Olympics in downhill mogul skiing.
4: How long have you been skiing for? I've been skiing since I was about four years old. I uh, started up when I was very young. Parents liked taking me down for a week. Uh, then at the age of about 12, I started taking it a bit more seriously and started spending seasons down there rather than just, just the week.
3: Oh, fantastic. So what is it about skiing that you enjoyed?
4: I think it was the freedom. Um, it was very open, very spacious, and you can pretty much just do what you want when you're want when you out there. Um, and it's an awesome feeling. I love jumping as a kid. That's what really got me into it. Um, I love being in the air.
3: The properties of snow are what makes it possible for us to enjoy it so much. Snow is frozen water, which forms a crystalline lattice structure. As pressure or friction is applied on snow, it melts slightly, and when the pressure is released, it refreezes. This is the principle behind making snowballs and, of course, snow sports. The physics behind sliding over snow is quite simple. When a person stands on top of a flat board in the snow, the contact between the board and the snow creates friction. This friction melts a small amount of water throughout the length of the board that is in contact with the snow. The water lubricates the movement of the board over the snow and allows the rider to slide, so when someone is coasting down a mountain, they are actually doing it on a thin film of water. If you're riding downhill, gravity does the rest. If you're moving across country or uphill, a little more effort is needed. This principle can be applied to all snow sliding sports such as skiing, snowboarding and tobogganing. Ice also melts when pressure is applied and sports like ice skating work because ice melts beneath the blades of ice skates, lubricating the surface of the ice. This reduces the friction so that a skater can slide over it. It's very similar to snow sports. Longer and narrower boards provide the largest area for lubrication and so slide faster downhill. Shorter and fatter boards are slower but are easier to turn on. What are the best techniques that you can advise for skiing generally? How when you're skiing do you need to shift your weight on your skis?
4: You always need to have your weight forward in your boots. You should always feel the pressure of your shins on the front of the boot. Never feel your calves pressing against the back of the boot that will always indicate you're backwards and you don't have control over the skis. Whereas if you're forwards, in the boot you get control of the ski because your toes have pressure downwards and you can direct the ski to where you want it to go. And when you're turning, always make sure you have your weight over your outside ski so you can almost lift your inside ski off the snow and still be perfectly balanced. That is the best place to have your weight and the most control you
3: can get in your turn. Okay. And when you're going for a turn, um, you actually use the edges of your skis, don't you? Always use the edges, preferably. Um, it
4: can be hard to use your edges occasionally, especially in Australian snow, because it's very icy a lot of the time. Uh, but it's always best to hold the edge and let the turn carve around rather than to slide the edges out and skid effectively on, onto, this, uh, onto the, the snow. Uh, it just
3: doesn't work very well. So what happens if you don't have your centre of balance worked out well on your skis? It becomes very hard to execute
4: a turn the way you want to. Uh, if, you, if you're not centred on your skis, you're not balanced, then you're not going you, to have the control. Your weight will be on the back of the ski, so you, your tips will s- swim around rather than stay firmly in place so you can carve the turn in properly.
3: When riding downhill, it is important to keep your weight centred over the board you are riding on. If your centre of gravity isn't over your board, you will quite often fall over. As you ride downhill, you accelerate because of the force of gravity acting on you. The faster you go, the easier it is to lose your centre of balance and fall, so controlling your descent is very important. Snowboards and skis are made with sharpened edges. As you shift your weight onto one edge, the edge digs into the snow a little, the lubrication on the board is reduced, and you control your downhill momentum. To turn left, you dig the left edge of your board into the snow a little more and lean to the left. The forces generated by the board, the snow, and gravity create a net force that pushes the board left. The same thing happens if you want to turn right. However, if speed down a straight slope is your thing, you will go faster if you bend your knees and squat into what's commonly referred to as the egg position. By squatting, you reduce your surface area and thereby reduce the drag force exerted on you as you accelerate down a mountain. Squatting or crouching is often used before jumps too. So what tips can you give us for jumping? How do you you actually prepare yourself on your skis to jump? Um, Well, the first thing, you have to get your head right.
4: You have to know that you are going to land the trick, you know you're going to do it properly, and always remember that you can't hurt yourself in the air. So the bigger you go, the better chance you've got of landing it.
3: So do you sort of... When you're actually going into a jump, do you squat down and then jump up in the last minute? How do you shift your weight on your skis? Uh, It depends on the jump,
4: but for most jumps these days, if you're talking in a terrain park, then you come in with a bit of leg bend and try to pop slowly off the top, not too sharp a pop, like you're doing a squat jump or anything, just a nice, easy rise up so you don't throw yourself off balance as you take off the jump.
3: After speaking to Nick, I asked some other Sydney-siders about what they liked about snow sports and their favourite tips for handling themselves on the snow. Have you ever been skiing or snowboarding before?
1: I've been skiing. I've attempted snowboarding, but let's leave it at that.
3: (laughs) So what was it that you liked about skiing or didn't like about skiing?
1: Uh, With skiing, I loved the feeling of the wind. I think that was the big thing. It's like, you know, when you're on a boat and you touch the water and it goes through your hands or the feel of the wind on your face I think that's like a biological thing with humans I think we like that the exhilaration and the freedom and the feeling of the tactile sensation of the wind on our face or whatnot it's very it reminds you you're alive
4: the weirdest thing was that I thought was counterintuitive Is when you do a turn you're supposed to lean into it like lean down the hill so it was really kind of strange but once you got used to it, yeah, I no, didn't mind it.
3: Did you find keeping a balance was a bit of a challenge when you were no, first starting? No, no, balance, no problem. I really enjoy the, uh, the sensation and the speed, uh, the feel of wind in your face, uh, the uh, attempts at maintaining your balance and not smashing headlong into the side of the cliff. That's always good. Yeah, that's pretty good. How about you? Have you ever skied or snowboarded before? Uh, yes, I've, I've skied and I've also snowbladed. All right. What was snowblading like? Compared to skiing, it was generally easier. I think you've got less to sort of worry about. You haven't got the poles, and you don't. It's easy to carry them, and uh, generally more fun. You can do tricks much more easily. It's pretty good. I'd recommend it. So next time you're down at the snow, enjoy what physics has to offer you.
1: Thanks Pat. And finally, if you thought voting was as simple as marking a piece of paper, you haven't tried e-voting. Ian Wolfe casts a look at the latest
0: e-craze. E-voting. This technology is being condemned by the Electronic Frontiers Foundation and civil libertarians around the world. This is because it's too easily rigged. Not only can your vote be flipped to be counted as a vote for a different party to the one you intended to vote for, but they leave very little behind that can be overseen by scrutineers or recounted later. The HBO documentary Hacking Democracy, www.hackingdemocracy.com, showed how votes were rigged in the 2004 American presidential election by hacking the touchscreen voting computers. Computer voting has been introduced across the world, despite continued warnings from the computer security experts that none of the systems are safe from tampering. Unfortunately, a paperless election is one you can't check for cheating. When the Republicans rigged the computing voting machines in the American 2000 elections, there was paper evidence in the form of the hanging chad. That was a not completely punched out hole in the Edison punch cards. You could tell there was a problem by looking at the punch cards, even if it wasn't as easy to read as paper marked with ink in English. The new electronic computerised systems barely leave any paper trails at all. Several voters had noticed that the screens had registered someone other than the person they chose to vote for. They were victims of vote-flipping. But they were left with no proof. Hacking Democracy makes a good detective story for how they hunted down proof of vote-rigging that would stand up in court. The Victorian government introduced computerised voting for visually impaired citizens for the 2006 state election. The Victorian government responded to concerns about hacking by reassuring people that their computers were not networked, so they were unhackable. The Australian military have also offered e-voting for soldiers serving overseas, using the Defence Secure Network. There's the issue of whether there is any advantage to electronic voting for the voter. In Brazil, it was for illiterate voters to be helped to vote. In India, it was to prevent voting fraud. In America, they claim that the counting is faster. For some disabled citizens, it may be more accessible than even a braille-printed ballot paper and a braille typewriter. However, the idea that accurate vote counting is faster with e-voting hasn't been proved. Switzerland manages to count 7 million paper and ink votes by hand in just six hours in every election. If there are any persuasive arguments for e-voting, then it's essential that the systems be as open and transparent as possible, or at least as much as a paper and ink voting system. This means the software cannot be secret and proprietary. There are problems with what to do when people report the screen is voting for the opposite of their intentions. In the US, vote-flipping victims have been told it was their own fault, or that it was a calibration error that just happened to always vote Republican. In Will County, in the state of Illinois, the voting computers were hit with the Windows Sophos virus. Of course, by March 2007, visually impaired Australians will all have a computerised access card, identifying them to the police and the government. The government suggests that the card could identify the user to a computer for their anonymous secret ballot. The computer would then read the ballot paper out to the voter through earphones so they could register their vote on a braille keyboard. The best computing voting systems leave a paper trail for the auditors. These systems spit out a ballot paper marked with ink for the voter to check before the vote is cast. How is this better than the old system of marking the paper yourself?
1: That's all we have for you this week. You may now go about the rest of your week with an overinflated ego, knowing that you are in possession of a greatly enhanced sciency understanding. If you want to contact the Diffusion team about any stories from today, or if you just want to tell us which Diffusion you're the biggest fan of, you can email us at diffusion@2ser.com. To download any of our illustrious shows, just take a trip to our website at www.diffusionradio.com. This week's show was a colourful mix of some of the usual suspects, Patrick Ruby, John August and Ian Wolfe, and it was skillfully produced by Diffusion heartthrob Ed Pollitt. We'll meet you back here same time next week for another show of Diffusion. I'm Emily Fern. Have a great day.
3: With God's glue It's gonna get sticky up too It's been a long, hot summer Let's get cover. Don't try too hard to think Don't think it out
0: You're not the only one Staring at the sun Afraid of what you'd find If you step back inside Just step out down, staring at
3: the sun I'm not the only one who's
0: happy to comply. comply
3: There's an insect in your
2: ear If you scratch it won't disappear